Hello, everyone. Welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here as usual to answer questions you may have about your practice and about implementing your practice of Buddhist teaching into your life. So anytime you have questions, just post them in the chat. We'll spend the first 15 minutes, as usual, collecting questions and otherwise practicing mindfulness meditation together. It's an opportunity to clear our minds and prepare ourselves for the Dhamma session. So first, first 15 minutes is silent. You can post your questions and then meditate with us. And we'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour to begin answering questions.
All right, we're back. So 15 minutes is up. From here on, we'll start to answer questions. I'd ask that the only thing in the chat be actual questions. Uh, just a reminder that this is not a free platform for you to provide instruction of your own or to discuss or to have discussion. And we try to keep it quite focused. Uh, the The idea is if you're not asking a question, you should be meditating. You should be mindful. Just close your eyes, focus on the emotions and the mind states and the physical sensations as well. And if, if you have a question, that's what you should be posting in chat. Ubante, we do have questions. When going through daily life and being mindful, will wise decisions come by themselves, or do we have to intentionally try to be wise in some way? Like if I sit being mindful, should I keep doing that until some obviously wise action comes to mind, or is it something you have to actually still deliberately think about? Well, reality isn't quite like that. You can't control in the way you think, and mindfulness helps you see that. But through mindfulness, the uh, decisions and the deliberations that come about are more mindful, or, or sorry, are more wise, and because there's greater purity. So you don't control or try to prevent yourself from doing things. You'll find that from time to time you just don't do things where normally you would expect that you would do something in different situations. But you do have to um, acclimatize and sort of find a, a new, sort of adjust the connection between regular life and mindfulness. In the beginning, there's quite a disconnect because your reasons for doing things in the past no longer seem like valid reasons, and so you find yourself at a loss, um, not acting when uh, you maybe should act because you don't have a better reason to do it. If someone asks you for help, uh, if someone uh, approaches you, if you're approached, or, or if you have responsibilities or so on, your reasons for doing them may not be the same but you have to adjust and you will find new reasons. And often the reason is just because it's expected of you. And you may not realize that that's a valid reason in the beginning. So it takes some adjustment, but uh, mindfulness doesn't really, isn't, isn't really going to get in the way of that. It's just going to force some adjustment because, again, your attachments, as they are let go of, your reasons for doing things have to change. I am a lay person, and I am also responsible for my elder, mentally challenged sister. Sometimes, thoughts of getting enlightened before her death bother me. Any advice? Well, they shouldn't bother you, but I mean, if anything bothers you, you should note that. Note the bothering, the worry, perhaps it's worry, or if it's fear, or doubt. But um, enlightenment shouldn't be something that that gets in your way of gets in your way of anything, really. Again, as with the last question, it will change your reasons for doing things. But when things are expected of you, it shouldn't get in the way of you doing those things at all. It just means an adjustment. You have to realize that there's other reasons for doing things than just I want to do it. I've always been unmotivated in life, but after meditating for a while, I no longer feel like it's worth it to go to the doctor, work, clean, shower regularly, or socialize. Am I doing something wrong? Yeah, again, this is very similar to these other questions. I mean, the idea is very similar. Uh, you have to appreciate that there are other reasons for doing things. Some things are not going to be have any uh, apparent reason for doing them, but things like going to the doctor, working, cleaning, showering, those sorts of things. There are obvious reasons for doing them that don't require um, don't require motivation even per se. It's just a, a a matter of course, because if you don't do some of those things, while well, you're going to get sick or you're going to uh, be unable to continue your life or you're going to be unable to 
uh, fit in with the social structure that you that you in which you live uh, things like socializing actually tend to be the sorts of things you can just drop completely and you don't have to look for reasons to socialize it's hard to find any good reason to socialize in the first place you know, most of the reasons for it are, are unwholesome I drifted away from my practice as life was getting too busy and stressful. I noted on this, but still succumbed to my luxury desires. They feel like addictions that help me cope. How do I beat this? Well, it, yeah, it's um, the, the real question in Buddhism. Buddhism answers it. Um, the answer is, is, I guess, the important Part of the answer is is that it is a challenge, and it can be, can be a long term challenge, and that's important. It's important to realize that it's not a quick fix. I mean, I hesitate in saying that because it can be. If you're a very special person, it could be. It's not exactly about how much time. It's not as though it's something that has to take a certain amount of time. But let's put it this way, your, your progress in freeing yourself from addiction is going to depend very much on many different factors. It could take a long time, it could take a short time. Some of those factors are already out of your control, and those are just not having been a very mindful person in the past and having developed lots of bad habits in the past, and not just in this life, but in many, many lifetimes. That can really make it take a lot longer. Uh, but also the amount of intensity you've put into the practice. How dedicated are you to to this question? If, you, if you're really serious, how do I beat this? Then, well, you go to a meditation center and you spend the next seven years in, in a room practicing mindfulness day and night. So um, to the extent that you're able to get to that point, that's uh, the extent to which you'll be able to beat it. Or, yeah, that's that's going to directly impact how quick you're able to beat it. But another thing, I guess, to note is because it's not when I say quick fix, probably better is it's not a it's not something you can truly beat in the sense that we normally think of it, like you can fix or you can turn off. It only how do you beat it is through wisdom, through familiarity and understanding. So you have to gain a clarity in regards to it rather than trying to fix it or turn it off you have to see it clearly and it's actually quite a bit easier and and remar more remarkable than you might think it's something that can be uh, embarked upon quite quickly if you take up the practice of mindfulness you'll begin to see changes quite quickly it's just to really get free from it can take lifetimes Negative thoughts of harming myself or others enter my mind. These thoughts are often directed towards family members and loved ones. Any advice on how to deal with such thoughts? So thoughts can't be negative. This is something you'll hear me say often. Thoughts are just thoughts. Um, what's negative is your reactions to the thoughts or reactions that lead to the thoughts. Um, and those are, are thoughts of ill will, thoughts of cruelty, thoughts of aversion, even thoughts of fear or uh, depression or, or frustration, that sort of thing. Those are um, states of mind, reactions two things and so if you separate those you'll be able to have a better perspective on these things the thoughts because thoughts are not something you can prevent so if you think of a thought as negative you'll be in trouble and you'll you'll, you'll be disturbed because of the parent's uh, inability to prevent thoughts and that's important you can't prevent thoughts we're not trying to prevent thoughts 
even if it's a thought that seems like a horrible thought, it's still just a thought. It doesn't have any power until you give it power. So maybe you have a, a bad thought and you feel guilty about it. Well, that guilt is also giving it power. But the thoughts also come from somewhere because of the anger and the aversion and so on. There will arise these thoughts. So you have to separate those and, and circle, uh, focus in on, on the uh, states of mind, the emotions, the disliking and so on. Also note the thoughts, but note them. Don't try to get rid of them. Try to see them more clearly. I have psychosis. Now I take supplements, which helps me a lot, but interferes with practice. I don't want to quit them because of the benefits. Should I continue practice, even if it's harder to see clearly? Sure, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I can't talk to you about taking supplements or getting off supplements or anything like that. Um, but I guess I would ask about... Um, the benefits and how it helps you. So I'm I'm not suggesting going off them because honest and it's not honestly not just because I can't because it's probably a bad idea to go off them. But um, you might want to start to um, look at your perspective on those problems and the benefits. If the benefits are just not having to deal with things, you might start to consider some of the ways that you might start to face the things that you're now unable to face so that in the future you can move towards actually facing them and by face facing them just means confronting them without reacting to them confronting thoughts and emotions without snowballing them and mindfulness should help you do that but that's really the point that's why medications are generally a, a hindrance because they um, not only do they directly prevent you from experiencing things that you should learn to deal with, but also they involve the aversion. You take them because you don't want to deal with, and it's that dislike or that uh, escapism that in the long term is not valid. I mean, it's not a viable solution because this isn't going to end in this life. In the next life, in future lives, you're still going to have these states, and you just, well, you won't always be able to take the medication for them. So learning how, on whatever level you're able to deal with, whatever level of these problems that you're able to face would be in your benefit. Something to talk to your doctor about, maybe. There is tension in the body and a huge anger about the tension. Both are very persistent. Is it reasonable to keep acknowledging the anger or rather to try to focus on the tension itself? You should focus on both, but especially the anger. I mean, the tension isn't something special, but since it's causing you tension, you should note it so that you change your perspective on it, so that you start to realize there's really no reason to be angry about it, which you may already be starting to realize. It's just a matter of being persistent and seeing that again and again until you get it, until it, it, it's ingrained in you and it's a, it, it overrides this habit, this old way, this old perspective of seeing a problem with the tension. It's like something you can't even control. You just watch yourself. Why are you so upset about this tension? It will come to that point and, and eventually that will change and there will be a new perspective where you know that because of wisdom, because of just clarity and familiarity, you see there's no reason to get, get upset about it. But it takes that time and that dedication of just being patient and teaching yourself like a child, just teaching them the truth about the experience so that they no longer have to be afraid of it or upset about it. Is meditating by listening to the sound of the breath used to gain samatha or vipassana? Well, listening to a sound isn't meditation, and that's probably, I mean, I wouldn't consider it meditation. The word, of course, is vague. What does the word meditation mean? It can mean many different things, I mean whatever you want it to mean, really. Um, but I wouldn't consider it valid meditation. Listening is not valid meditation. So people who listen to music or listen to sounds and say they're meditating, that's not valid meditation, Not not in our tradition. 
Now here, see, because you're not meditating, you're listening. And listening is an active thing where you are just, I don't know what are you, what even listening means. You're just maybe paying attention to it, you could describe it as. But meditation in our tradition would be reminding yourself about the nature of the experience. So it would be hearing the sound, which is happening with even without listening. And then every time there is the hearing, to say to yourself, hearing, that would be, that would be vipassana. But what you're talking about, in my mind, wouldn't be samatha or vipassana. How you know the difference between samatha and vipassana is the object. So sound is a is an object that is impermanent, unsatisfying, and uncontrollable. Because of that, it's an object of vipassana. Samatha takes an object that is stable, satisfying, and controllable, a conceptual object, in fact. So uh, you conceive of something in your mind, you create an, an object in the mind, like a color or a light or an element, something that you can focus on, an idea. Because it's stable. But what you're talking about isn't yet meditation at all. In daily life, I recognize that I often don't know what I think, and only when I'm home at the end of the day can I analyze what I might have been thinking. Any advice on noting thinking at the moment? Well, in daily life, it's hard to note everything. It's very quick, and you're very distracted by other things. We recommend noting the four postures, walking, standing, sitting, and lying. They're more coarse, much easier to pay attention to. You can also note when you're distracted. If you're thinking a lot, you can note distracted, distracted from time to time, but I wouldn't put too much pressure on yourself in that regard. If you're doing an intensive course, it might be more reasonable to note during daily life all the very little things. But um, maybe you're doing the at-home course, so you've been instructed to try, so you can note. Uh, it also doesn't matter what you think, but if you know that you were thinking, just say thinking. If you know that you're distracted, say try distracted. But again, during your day, during your work day, try and just note the postures whenever you can. That's a great place to start. And the thing about noting the postures is, as a result of noting the physical reality, the mental reality will become clear at the same time. That's a quote or a paraphrase from the Visuddhimagga, a very ancient text. It's a very important quote where it says, the more clear the physical becomes, uh, the mental becomes uh, proportionately clear. As the physical becomes clear, the mental becomes clear as well. So you start to see how the mind works based on paying attention to the body. Can one's diet hinder or help one's daily meditation practice? Would you recommend eating more natural foods over processed ones? It can. It can have an effect, especially in the beginning. Um, I would recommend to... Eat simple food, um, less flavorful food, of course, because the the real the real a much more important issue is how attached we are to food and the tastes of food. So eating simple foods, foods that are not your favorite, but foods that are medicine, foods that are healthy. Um, talk to your doctor or nutritionist about which foods you need to eat and eat those. Is very valuable for on two parts. It's valuable because the physical comfort of the body is going to help with your practice and because it's um, going to help with your addiction when you stop eating junk food and delicious food and that sort of thing. I find it hard to focus while sitting upright due to a medical condition and have found that laying on the floor has led to a more fruitful practice. Is this appropriate? not done to escape discomfort. So I don't know what you mean by medical condition. Um, you know, focus isn't doesn't come from physical mental conditions. So if you mean a mental medical condition, then that's something for certain changing the postures can be really valuable for helping, for ameliorating. If you find it hard to focus sitting up, then yes, lying down can be an, a, a good exercise. But if it's just physical, I would just I encourage you to try to uh, separate the physical and the mental and, and not to make too strong of an association between physical situ physical 
conditions and your mental condition uh, and and try your best to uh, be focused on whatever the physical condition is try to um, be mindful and not have high expectations of focus um, sometimes our ideas of focus are that we shouldn't think or that our, our mind should be still and quiet and that's unreasonable and it's unbeneficial we're trying to see the unpredictable nature of the mind we're trying to become more flexible that's the real goal that's how it should feel like that you're more flexible you're unfazed by change so when the mind is still you're okay but when the mind is unstill you're also just as okay because thinking is just a part of reality it's like hearing or seeing what is the next teaching after knowing the five hindrances and noting the senses What is the next teaching? Oh, you maybe you read our read our booklet and in the last chapter of the booklet that's what it talks about. No, that's not true. Five in why would that be the last teaching that you know? I don't know. I guess what I would say is um if you haven't taken the at home course, take the at home course and you'll see which teachings go in which order. But um I mean, yes. The in the dumb in the dhammas, the first two are the five hindrances and the six senses. So you can read the Satipatthana Sutta. You'll see in the in the section on dhammas, there are there are many teachings. That's maybe what you're talking about because those are the first two. Those are the ones that are most important, and you're the most likely to actually apply in your practice. The rest get a little bit theoretical in a sense. It's the kind of thing that just comes as a result of practice. They're important for understanding and. Maybe not so much um, noting, per se, but you can read about them in the Satipatthana Sutta. I find myself using the word liking and wanting for the overwhelming majority of my practice and rarely using any other words. Is this a problem? Should I be trying to note more of the details? I mean, you should, after noting, liking, or wanting, you should go back to the stomach rising and falling. Um, and yeah, it might be getting a little bit lazy if you're not noting other things. You should note what's there. If, if for some reason there were only liking and wanting, then sure. But the question is, what is it that you like and what is it that you want? Are you noting those things as well? Maybe there's things, probably there's things you're not noting, which is the bigger problem. After about 30 minutes in meditation, my foot always starts to sleep. I don't know what I'm noticing. Any suggestions? You don't have to notice anything. You can say knowing maybe or feeling if there is a feeling of it going to sleep, but you just ignore it, you know. It's not an issue. Just bring your mind back to the stomach. Be careful before you stand up because your legs asleep, you can actually fall over or stand on your your leg wrong you know wait for it to wake up before you stand up a number of very coarse people now live directly opposite my front door on weekends they loiter about and shout i experience violent aversion to them how to use the aversion in practice well i don't know if you've read our booklet or if you're doing the at-home course that's where you would start and you would learn how to deal with these things um but you have to be a little more accurate you let me see um let's put aside the first part but um yeah no i uh, where you say i experience violent aversion to them you you don't actually you experience violent aversion to sound and to your perceptions about the sound of the sound being made by coarse people but the experience is actually started with just sound and so the truth is you're not experiencing anything to do with people at all you're just experiencing sound now that can be hard when you under when it's words and it's very quick to be protest processed in the mind you'll quickly process a meaning and uh, understanding of what the people are saying and then you start to think about what they're talking about speech is a very challenging one but 
it's an it's a practice and it's something you can practice with so a bit in the booklet would explain to you that you would note um, disliking you can also note hearing hearing but uh, important point as always that i've keeps i say again and again you're not trying to make these things go away even the aversion it's not that aversion is not a problem it is a problem but trying to make it go away isn't the way to make it go away it doesn't go away because you want it to goes away because you start to see more clearly and you start to realize this is just sound this isn't a person this isn't a bad person or a coarse person this is just sound you start to see that the anger is a cause for stress and suffering and a lot of unpleasantness and it makes you a it makes you a coarse person you become coarse because of the anger so once you see that then you start to let it go and in order to see that you have to look you have to pay attention that's what the practice is for get you into this state where you're more objective and facing things without re reacting to them or judging them what is the difference between sati reminding oneself and awareness well they're just words um i'm glad that you appreciate that you use my definition of sati or the more accurate definition of sati um oh, awareness i mean is something that everyone has uh so there are different kinds of awareness there are there's unwholesomeness there's awareness with unwholesomeness right so when you are averse to something you're aware and you're aware in a averse sort of way with a disliking so awareness i would say is synonymous with consciousness but you know the word can be used in different ways it's just it's too vague and and you, it doesn't yet say anything unless it's in context or unless you provide more detailed explanation of what you mean by awareness it doesn't mean anything more i would say than the word consciousness which of course is happening all the time whether it's wholesome or unwholesome sati is also is always wholesome so if you have this not reminding yourself sati is the remembering like remembering yourself or remembering about the present moment if you have that where you are grasping mindfulness is said to have the quality of grasping the object properly like when you grab a knife if you grab it by the handle instead of the blade you've grasped it properly and it won't hurt you when you have a proper grasp of experience seeing is just seeing hearing is just hearing that's sati kind of awareness or it involves awareness but it's a specific type of awareness should i move more slowly throughout the day with my muscles and joints completely relaxed as part of maintaining the stillness and equanimity as it is described in the mahasi sayada tradition well, it's probably described in regards to people doing intensive practice. So, y y sure, if you can, but in ordinary life, um, I wouldn't put too much pressure on yourself to do that. If you can, if you live such a simple and peaceful life that you can, then absolutely, it's great. You should think of every movement as something you observe rather than something you do. Yeah, that's a, a very sort of profound and challenging task to change your perspective rather than thinking i'm walking and and thinking of it as doing something you're doing watch when it happens try to be the observer and the observer of the intentions to do things and so on so you say intending or wanting when you want to stand up and observe the movements as they happen What do you think about the Book of the Dead? It's said in the book that even a layperson can achieve enlightenment upon death if they heard its teaching and had faith in it. Yeah, that sounds like it's taken out of the uh, Lotus Sutra. Not, neither of these things are really anything to do with what we teach. Faith doesn't lead to enlightenment, neither does hearing. only three things that lead to enlightenment 
seeing impermanence, seeing suffering, seeing non-self. Those are the three gate, triple gateway to deliverance, the only doors that lead to freedom, seeing those three things. Should I label Upeksha if I'm not sure whether what I'm experiencing is truly Upeksha? What is the defining characteristic of Upeksha? Well, if you're not sure of something, that would be your better note. You should know unsure or doubting or confused or so on. But Upeksha, this is just a word. I would use a word that is more um, familiar to you. I doubt that you use that word much in ordinary daily life. Um, it's a Sanskrit word, so I don't suppose you speak Sanskrit in daily life. But uh, if your language, I, there may be Hindi or certain in Indian languages that use it, or some form of it. Uh, maybe Singhala does, I'm not sure. But you would still use a much simpler word, like if you feel calm, you would say calm. If you feel quiet, you would note quiet. Quiet, those are forms of upeka. I mean, you should note what you experience should label what uh, what you are aware of how does one find the balance between being strategic and logical versus being empathetic I, mean, I don't think any either of those is really a good goal to focus on I would say I would give up both, give up being strategic and logical, give up being empathetic, try to be mindful and wise. And through wisdom, through seeing clearly, you'll find you're much more logical and much more empathetic. They'll just come naturally. And then there's no need for a balance. Balance is kind of like this in all things. You'll find balance is where it's appropriate naturally as a result of mindfulness. Trying to find a balance is always going to be a bad idea because uh, a true balance is natural. A true balance comes from clarity, comes by itself. Of course, there are some things that shouldn't be balanced, and you'll see that as well. Like there's certain things that are just outright to be discarded. But uh, I would say logic and empathy are two things that tend to come naturally to one who is wise and has a clear mind with super mundane foresight it is noted as seeing if seen what is the point of the super mundane to buddhists i remember it referred to as a distraction to the practice I don't understand this question. Um, I, it feels like you're using the word super mundane all wrong. That's not how we use that word. I mean, it has nothing to do with seeing as seeing if seen. That's mundane. Seeing is very mundane. It's important. I mean, it's a part of the practice that leads to the super mundane. But the super mundane, there's no seeing in the super mundane. Super mundane is that which is free from the mundane world of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and feeling and thinking. So it's not a distraction. The super mundane is... Uh, maybe you're talking about the magical. I don't know. It's also not the magical and like superpowers, like reading people's mind or ESP or clairvoyance, clairaudience. Those are all mundane. So I don't know if that's what you're referring to or what. I, I'm missing something here, and it's probably obvious to you who asks. But um, the super mundane is the goal of the practice. It's not a distraction. Bhante, we've asked and answered every question put before us today. Oh, wow. Well, unless there are more questions, we can call it a day. Maybe we'll just sit quietly and see if anyone has more questions for a minute or two.
All right. Any any more questions? Yes, Bonte. A couple more have come in. Great. Are monks receptive to compliments, or is a compliment a distraction? Um. Yeah. Not. Uh, I mean, these are just words, right? Receptive. I'm not quite sure what. I mean, I guess okay. Wait, let's let's think about why you asked this question. Wondering about complimenting someone and how one should take compliments. One should take compliments with uh, neutrality. It is an interesting idea, and worth noting, worth pointing out that in fact you should take compliments as though you never heard them. A compliment should not be something that sways you at all. You should be unmoved by praise or blame. If someone praises you, you should be unmoved by it, so unreactive. You should not be pleased by a compliment. Compliments are not a distraction, but being pleased by a compliment is not only a distraction, it's an unwholesomeness. And you should guard carefully. Compliments are, are dangerous, in fact, for this reason. Compliments should be seen with a certain amount of trepidation where you 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 kind of are concerned not not for the person because in fact complimenting others is a good thing right it's and it's mudita we call it when you appreciate the goodness of others that's called mudita it's a very important buddhist concept it's important to appreciate the good in others and to express that appreciation but when you receive a compliment oh that's scary scary because you might attach to it you might feel ego you might feel proud you might start to be complacent and think you're oh i'm a, such a good person everyone loves me and then what are you going to do you'll just stop stop trying you'll stop um improving because you feel good about yourself and then when people say bad things about you you'll be upset because you don't like that and then you'll really go go down a bad road You'll try to find only people who compliment you. You'll, you won't be able to take criticism, even if it's good criticism. You'll get upset and angry when people criticize you or point out something you did wrong. Compliments are dangerous. That's, um, so, so maybe just rephrase the question, how should, how should we approach or look at compliments? Those are some of the important ways to think of them. How to deal with jealousy in meditation? So jealousy involves aversion. It also involves desire. You shouldn't just note those. If you want something, you say wanting. If you're angry or upset that you don't have what you want, you say angry or upset or disliking. You have to break it down to what you actually experience. Do I need to decide how to dispose of my earthly possessions before I die? Are they a distraction for those who survive me? Well, they're all, same with uh, compliments. I mean, they're no, they're 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 a danger. <laughs> um, th this one is less uh, apparent and and probably less of a a little bit less of a danger. It's just you know you need possessions to live, so possessions can be very useful. It's hard to see the danger. They still are dangerous. They're dangerous because they can you can become lazy and complacent if you're rich or so on. Um, but your your best way to dispose of your earthly possessions is to do something good with them. Do use them to cultivate wholesomeness. And part of that probably means caring for your survivors, children, spouses, that sort of thing. I mean, caring for them is a very good and kind thing to do. But you can also use your money to, you know, make be make a meditation group in your area, support a meditation center in your area, that sort of thing. You know, use the money as a support for, or you use your possessions as a means of benefiting people spiritually. Print dhamma books, that sort of thing. Spread dhamma. Does using, using labeling to prevent running thoughts 
also lead to jhana. Well, that's not why we use labeling. Labeling isn't, well, I, I guess sort of. Yeah, it does prevent, it doesn't prevent running thoughts. It prevents reactions. It prevents extrapolation. It can, to some, it, it prevents extrapolating thoughts. So it won't stop you from thinking, but it'll keep thinking as just thinking. Um, and it can lead to two types of jhana. If it depends on the object, if the object again is something conceptual, then because of the stability and the repetitive nature of the awareness, it leads to samatha jhana. If it's an um, if it's a real object like an experience, then it's going to be impermanent, suffering, and non-self. It's going to be unstable, unpredictable, unsatisfying. And so it'll lead to what's called lakanupanijana, which is um, a meditation on uh, impermanence or the three characteristics, a flexible concentration. Reminder that jhana just means meditation. The Buddha talked about four levels of it, but it's a little bit general. It's just a general framework, I would say, for how pure and clear the mind is. Is it necessary to do walking meditation when I walk a lot at work? So, um, probably not necessary. I mean, it's never necessary to do walking meditation at all. Uh, walking and sitting is... Um, how we do formal courses in this tradition. I, I mean, I'd recommend, especially for people who don't do much walking, that you do walking and sitting together. But even still, walking isn't just, it isn't actually walking, it's just awareness of the movements of the feet. So it is something different from the walking you do at work, so I wouldn't disregard it. It's. I would rather phrase it like this, if you feel too tired to do walking or that sort of thing after you work, then you can omit it. Um, but it's not something where you should feel like uh, you have already done enough walking or you it's unnecessary, it's something that you can do away with because you've already done it at work, because you haven't done it. That's not walking at work is not the same as walking meditation. It's not actually walking. And that walking meditation is not actually walking, it's just, as I said, the awareness of each movement of the feet one at a time. So it's the kind of thing where you could say, yeah, maybe I'll skip walking because I walked a lot and I feel tired. But if you have the energy, it's very much worth it to still do walking. If you're doing the at-home course, you need to do at least an hour a per day, half walking, half sitting. So that's at least a half an hour of formal walking meditation every day, and it has to be before you do sitting each time. Thank you, Bhante. We're crossing the hour, and you've answered every question we have. All right. Thank you all for your questions. Thank you, Chris, for your help, and Edit, who's in chat, mm. keeping things in line. Uh, have a good week, everyone. Peace and happiness to you all. Sadhu. Sadhu.